Matthew, Matthew 9 is where we're at in the scriptures. This is a sister, sister passages to the scripture, uh, Mark 2, Luke 5. And what we're going to look at is, in the beginning of this passage, the three individuals that have an encounter with Christ. Uh, we first of all see in uh, chapter, or verse 6, the Bible says, But th that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, go into thine house. God commands this man to get up and to go. And he arose and departed to his house. So we have the man that was cured in verse 6. Then we have the man that was called, Matthew, or also named Levi in verse 9. And Jesus passed from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. He got up and went as well. And then we have this group called the Pharisees. Uh, verse 13. Jesus looks at them and says, uh, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. He gives them a commandment also to get up and to go. And the idea of this, this command from God and that we might also follow the Lord's leading when he says to get up and go and to, to do a work for him, to be able to, and we see a man that was cured, we see a man that was called, and then we see a group of guys that are critics. And we're going to address those three topics this morning as the Lord leads. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we say that sincerely. We say that often, Lord, but may it always come from a heart of gratitude. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the church. Thank you for this church and this body of believers. Thank you for Pastor Hanks, and we do pray for him and the group as they will be concluding their services in Panama this morning and as they travel back tomorrow. Father, please give them safety. God, I ask that my speech and my preaching this morning would not be with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that our faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the cured first. Let's read this passage together in Matthew 9. I'll start in verse 2 if you'll follow along with me. The Bible says, And behold, there brought to him a man sick of the palsy, laying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Uh, the Bible says, Jesus seeth their faith. He said, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy. And Mark, uh, you'll see it said like this, there was one sick of the palsy born of four. This is one of my, my favorite stories in, in the Bible about how the men carrying the man sick of the palsy come to a house where Jesus is at and they could not get to it for the press. The people had surrounded the house. You kind of get this picture that uh, there's standing room only in the house, how there's kind of overflow all the way out into the parking lot. <laughs> a little bit how I imagined Saturday to go with everybody at this building. And how the men come up expecting to be able to have an audience with Christ, and they can't. And they're, they're carrying with them, born of four, a, a cot with maybe four handles, and there's a man sick of the palsy in the middle, and they said, look, we, we came this far, we've got to be able to see him. And they go up on the roof, and they break the tiles, and they lower him down. And just the, I, are you familiar with this story? In the scene, okay. And so, so once again, you see it in three or four, three different of the Gospels. And in this scripture, God doesn't give us the, the idea of him being lowered down, but the idea that he was brought to Christ. As, as Christians, as, as, as Baptists, we have a desire to see our country brought back to Christ. We, we have a desire for our area, for the state of Kansas, for the city of Topeka, for the city of Lawrence, to be, that, see that it's a, it's a church-going people. Uh, but I, I read a quote, I heard a quote uh, that by a man uh, named Lakin, I think. He said, and you'll never have a church-going people until you have a people-going church. This man was brought to Christ. And, and for you and I to be able to care enough to bring people to Christ, 
And it takes a degree of self-sacrifice, but you want to see a good Sunday go to a great Sunday? You invite somebody to be here with you. It does. It gives you that anticipation of, did they come? Are they here? Did they walk in? I, I'm anticipating seeing them. What happened? What kept them from coming? And you get to be involved in just something that's really not shy of miraculous. To be able to connect a sinner with a savior. To be able to bring a backslidden one back to the fold. To be able to be a, have that opportunity. We hear about seeker-friendly churches, but the Bible says there's none that seeketh after righteousness. If they're going to come, it's, gonna be, it's going to be because we go. And I want to encourage everyone in here to, to, to personally take that responsibility to go. God healed this man. Sick of the palsy. Let's continue to read the story. And behold, a certain of the scribes, verse 3, said within themselves, this man blasphemeth. Speaking of Jesus. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. The, once again, the idea of having a good Sunday go to a great Sunday, having the people glorify God, be able to see miracles happen, be able to bring someone to Jesus is, is so special. There's, this world is full of individuals who are poor spiritually, who are maimed, who are halted, and who are blind. And the Bible says in Luke 14, the master of the house being angry said to his servants, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. It is the commission of God to his church. It is the mission statement of the church. And the church, are, are, we are the church, the people. It's individually our responsibility. It is the pastor's responsibility to help facilitate these things, but it's not exclusively his responsibility to be the one that goes out. How is he supposed to do that? He's not. He will be unable to be able to reach the people that you could reach, to be able to touch the lives that you could touch, to be able to witness to the people that you could witness to. Amen. And for, for people to neglect this great, not just responsibility, but privilege to be a part of the service of the king is a travesty. And not to just be able to take it as, this is a duty that I have to fulfill or an obligation that I have to be involved in, but this is just a special work of the Lord that he has given to us. Why would he entrust eternal souls to such flawed individuals? Why would he need us? He's chosen to use us and to be able to be used of God is something special, my friends. To be able to look back and be able to say, I had a, I had a part in this person's life. I, I think about Mrs. Sharp. I, so Brother Sharp I had not met until he came to Kansas. I'd never spoken to him in person until he came two weeks ago. Mrs. Sharp, I grew up with her. She was a few years older than me. And, and her family, the Hall family, was just instrumental in my life and in the lives of so many others. A military man who just had a desire to serve God and his wife as well. And, and 16, I think, 16 years active duty. And, and the Lord said, I want you to go full-time ministry now. I mean, four more years Maybe he could stall for just a little bit, but, but the master of the house says, go out quickly into the streets. He had this responsibility to go, and I'm so grateful for an individual, a man that volunteered to be able to serve full time, Amen. to be able to give of himself, and how that has impacted my life in, in ways that I can never explain, and how you could have that opportunity to impact lives in ways that you will never know. A man born of four, he was brought, and God saw their faith, and he was healed. 
the Lord looked at the sick of the palsy and said, Arise, go to thy house. The first of three get up and go encounters with Christ is this man of the sick of the palsy. And I think we'll revisit him at some point in the, in the message. But I want to look at the second. As we read through verse 9, the Bible says this. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. It's a, it's a single standalone scripture. And something's itching my nose. It's so... I just got to do this and then keep going. <laughs> I was trying to do it discreetly, but it just was not working. So <laughs> time out and then, <laughs> okay, I think we're good to go now. Matthew, who, who is he? Well, this is the Matthew that was one of the 12. This is the Matthew that penned this gospel. This is his, his moment, his encounter with Christ. And he puts a single verse in here. He's also called Levi. He puts his name Matthew in this passage. Jesus passed forth from thence and saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. He was busy about his employment. There is something spectacular, spiritually uh, intertwined into just the regular duties of life, doing them well, working your job. You would see just as the devil capitalizes on idle individuals and enlists them into his purposes, God typically looks at busy individuals. People who are working, and not just working at the church, but just people who are working, who have dedicated themselves. Who, let's, let's do this. Take your Bible, please, to Titus, if you would. To Titus chapter 2. I'll, I'll meet you there in just a minute. But I want, I want, I'll flip over there with you. I want us to be able to see just how often the spiritual factor that is involved in how we conduct ourselves in our day-to-day responsibilities, chores, the importance of, of this. I remember a, a quote by a, a pastor. He was being asked something about, about differentiating between the secular and the spiritual. And he looked at the young man and he said, and to the Christian, all ground is, is sacred ground. And, and the idea is that you don't see the devil behind every sneeze, okay? You don't, you're not kind of like that. But the idea that everything that we do, we are made in the image of Christ, of God that we are, are spiritual individuals. There's, <laughs> there's a distinct difference between a human and an animal, Amen. right? This is why it's okay to eat a cow, but not your neighbor. <laughs> and the spiritual that, involves, that is involved in the day-to-day life that we live, in, in your employment, your place of employment, your homework assignments, your chores at home, a kind of unofficial mission statement of our family comes from Psalm 90, verse 17. It says, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. And I think about just, the, not the work of our hearts, not, not the work of our spirits, but just the, the literal work of our hands. We say, may the beauty of God be upon this moment and this work that we're doing. And God, would you establish this work? And I know as a pastor, much of my work has to do with the ministry. But this is for families. This is for men who are on construction sites and you're working with your hands. And these are for stay-at-home mothers who are working with your hands. And you say, would the beauty of God be upon this moment? And God, would you use this in a special way? And God came to this man named Matthew who was just a tax collector. There was nothing spiritual or sensational about his job, but he was busy about his job. 
And for you and I to neglect the daily duties that God has given us, for us to not do it heartily as unto the Lord, for us to not put it, our, our might into it, is, is negligent as a Christian. And, God, and I'm not saying if you were working hard at your job, you were going to automatically be transitioned into being one of the apostles. It might not be that, that dramatic. But the idea of God, if, would you like to be used of God? Would you like to be able to know that God has used you in a special way? Then don't neglect the daily duties of a, just a normal being. Titus chapter 2. Let's look at uh, verse 9. I exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. We have a employee-employer relationship and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, not, not stealing, not robbing, but showing all good fidelity, being um, reliable, being trustworthy, and that they may adorn the, doct the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. He brings this doctrinally. He says, I'm going to bring doctrine into this. Uh, make sure that you're working hard at your job. Making sure that if you're on the clock, you're working. Making sure that you're ethical, that you're responsible, that you're trustworthy in, in your employment. What is the header of this? But Titus 2, verse 1, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. You want some doctrinal truths? Just be an honest employee. Don't give your boss a hard time. Life-changing. It very well could be. I think God saw Matthew sitting at their seat of customs and saw there's a man diligent about his work. It's a, it's a, it's a thankless job. It's, it was not high profile, but the man was doing his job. And someone that was called, that was used of God. Look at, look at several of the other categories in Titus 2. Let's work our way up through these verses. Young men, verse 6, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good work. That idea of being a good, hard worker isn't typically the definition associated with teenage guys. Why don't you redefine what it means to be a young man in this day and age? Go back to the scriptural definition of being a hard worker. Some of the most uh, laughable things are Men, I want to be used of God, and they know all the rhetoric, and I, I want the power of God in my life. You know what? Then why don't you apply yourself to study? Why don't you do your homework? Let's see how your, your work ethic is at home. Why don't you just do your chores? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm built for greater things than that. Uh, no, <laughs> not really. Not until you uh, are faithful in the little things. It is, it is that important. It really is. Uh, knowing about their good work, Laura and I were talking about this just the other day, that the money that we have now and the things that God's given us now, I can, I can trace that money back to work I did as a teenager. My dad just established that, that work is a part of life. Let's, let's pause here and establish this. You know that God gave Adam work to do before the curse. Work is not a curse. There, there is a benefit in work itself and if you can embrace that idea that life is work, but work is fun, and you, you just hold on to that and be known about good works, about applying yourself, doing things with excellence, not cutting corners, in the simplest of things, my friends. And I don't know why we're, we're stalling here for just a little bit, but I think this is needful. That, and okay, one minute though, to, to give a little bit of, of grace to the generation of men that don't know how to work, we look up to the generation of men who were hard workers, and God says to the elder men and the elder women, why don't you 
Now that you don't have the, the same work responsibilities, maybe you're in your retired years and you don't have the same pressing schedule that you used to have, why don't you apply some of that time into teaching somebody how to work that doesn't know how to? Why don't you mentor a young man? The value of the men in the church that I grew up in is, is amazing. My dad is a good man. My dad is a hard worker. He's an electrician. He worked construction. He taught us how to do that. But one of the best things he did for me and my, my brother is he connected us with other men in the church. He allowed us to be able to be influenced by other good men in our church. And he was able to help round out an education in hard work that he himself may have not been able to fully give us. The value of a church family, the value of good men, and for, for men that are... Now, you, don't be weird about this, okay? Don't, that's kind of the weirdest thing when you're trying to mentor a guy who doesn't want you, <laughs> want any of your, your help. Learning how to work hard. Learning how to be profitable in business. Learning how to save and learning how to spend. And I, I'm telling you, the house that we bought here, I go back to the, the house that we bought in Texas. And we bought that house in Texas because of the different house we bought in Texas. I bought that house because of the house I bought in Illinois. The first house I bought, I was 20 years old. I was able to buy a house when I was 20 years old because of the work that my dad pushed me out to do when I was 12 years old. And, I just, and, and it just carries over and over and over. And you think, it's not a magical formula. It's just, we were known about good work. And it was something that my dad established. And, and what did that do? I think it gets the attention of your creator who designed your hands to work and your body, especially young men, to carry a load, a responsibility. And he said, Matthew, you're doing your job well. He, he, he said, why don't you get up and why don't you follow me? To be used of God, first apply yourself to just your daily tasks. It is practical, but my goodness, it is so spiritual. And, and it brings about a sense of satisfaction to otherwise remedial tasks, days. I think about, once again, stay-at-home mothers. I think about parenting, just parenting generally, and how, how much you invest in your kids. And the return on that investment you might not see for decades, but you still pour yourself into them daily. Look at some of the other passages in here. Young men is verse 6, verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. Once again, just a homemaker. It sounds so remedial, there's nothing sensational about it. But he says, I'm going to speak unto you uh, that which becometh sound doctrine. We go up to verse 2, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate. The, verse 3, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. Teaching, and the idea of that, just our, our daily tasks. God, would the beauty of the Lord be upon us, and bless thou the work of our hands. Establish thou the work of our hands. Establish thou it. The work of your hands. Be diligent about your, your students, about your studies. Employees, be ethical workers. Let's go take our, our Bibles back to Matthew 9. Let's go back and look a little bit more at Matthew, the man that was called... Matthew chapter 9, I want you to, I think, we'll highlight one other element in this passage. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. What, did, what possessed this man to have such a spontaneous 
and dedicated response to the call of Christ. This wasn't a homeless man who had nothing better to do. He wasn't sitting there because he didn't have employment. He left his job. He left his income. He left the money that he had collected. He left it all and followed Christ. I think there's a passage, if I can find it, in uh, Luke 5. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. What, What motivates? It's when God speaks. As a Christian that goes to church regularly. We should never become accustomed to the fact that this is God's word. And, and, and when we read our Bibles, that these are the very words of God and how they could touch your heart and change your direction. And to come to church as more of a observer than a participator is a loss of a Sunday. To be able to come, though, and say, God, would you speak to me personally? God, would you direct my paths? We pray for the young people that they would surrender to the will of God. And I think some of the, if we go the opposite, the old people should be just as surrendered to the will of God. Pastor Hank said it at his missions conference. He said, every missions conference, I say, God, if you want me to go, I will go. He will get up. He will leave you. He'll leave this building. He'll leave the state if God directs him to do so. It's the power of the word of God, folks. And it still has that same power that it had back then when Jesus was speaking the words as much as when he wrote the words down for, and preserved them for us today. And for as a pastor, I have confidence in the power of the word of God. Could I convince you to get up and go? I don't think so. But God could convict you in that sense if he so chose. Could you as a soul winner handing out a simple track, could you convince somebody to be saved? You can't, but there's power in the word of God. And be able to quoting a scripture or just walking them through a simple five minute gospel presentation. And sometimes you walk away and you say, I didn't have much influence. The power of the word of God, the influence that a single statement from God can have on the soul of an individual could be eternally impacting. And that's what happened with Matthew. God said, look, I just want you to get up and go. And he immediately left. He left all, and he got up and followed him. The called Matthew. And then let's conclude with the critics. We see in Matthew chapter 9. Let's keep reading in verse 9. Uh, yep, yeah, I'm in 8, verse 10. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Okay, hold on for one second. So this house is Matthew's house. He, uh, God says, get up and go. He goes back to his house and he cares for his family. When it says he left all, he didn't leave his family. Okay, God's not going to call you to save the world and to be able to sacrifice your family in order to do it. That's, that's not been God's template. I talked to a man Thursday and he, he had a burden that he felt God had put on his heart to be able to establish a home in Topeka to be able to help people that were kind of transitioning from being offenders, from being criminals into regular life or those that were coming out of a system of... of uh, foster system and it was a good initiative and he was just telling me I believe so much in this mission I believe so much in this I've given everything I have I've lost my job and I've lost my family I've lost everything I have to be able to pour myself into this it's not God's will don't put losing your family on God if families are lost it's not God's fault individuals make choices And care for your family. Matthew went back home. He's at his house. Jesus is there. He apparently invites the other publicans and he says, and the sinners, and they have this meeting together with Jesus. And and there are some passerbyers here. 
And in verse 11, then the Pharisees saw it and they said unto his disciples, Jesus' disciples, why eat your master with publicans and sinners? Okay, verse 11, why eat your master with publicans and sinners? One thing that it does us good to learn is that some questions are asked because people are seeking answers. Other times questions are asked because people are seeking arguments. And to be able to discern which is which and to be able to respond appropriately. Now that discernment is not always easy. I know sometimes I have brushed off questions flippantly, realizing, oh, they were genuine. They really wanted to answer. Sometimes I engaged in conversations and I regretted it from the very, very minute it happened. Sometimes like through COVID, I think that J-Dubs had like a phone bank that they would recall on everybody because they couldn't go door to door. And I mean it. And there was like a select few that were calling churches. And I was always the one that got that call. And it was so bizarre. I mean, it. They, had, they, I, they must have had like this soundboard of sound effects because it was just this, it took on this personality. Oh, I'm just a humble truck driver. You hear this? What are you, who am I talking to? He has this question about, uh, is Jesus God? Well, the Bible says no man hath seen God. Why would you say Jesus is God? Because John clearly saw Jesus and I don't have time for this. Oh, you don't have time for Jesus? No, I don't, okay? Not what you're talking about. Oh my, and this happened multiple times during COVID. I, I, don't, I can't imagine sitting in that environment. This, this one particular instance, this guy would not stop talking. And I just said, look, I, I'll give you like five more minutes. Oh, you'll give me five more minutes? I'm giving you so much and oh, you're killing me. So finally, finally, I, because at that point, how do you hang up on an individual? When, I'm on the church's phone, okay? I don't know how that's gonna go over. But I really needed to end this conversation. And I don't remember what I said, but finally he went off the edge and he said, that's fine, I'm not gonna cast my pearls before pigs like you. And he hung up. And I was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> finally, I have to remember that line because it just pushes him over the edge and kills the conversation. Right. What are we talking about? Hang on, uh, Pharisees. Oh, questions, questions. They came to the disciples, they didn't come to Jesus. They asked it and sometimes there's, there's murmurings and there's questions. Hey, why does the pastor do this? Oh, why does the church live this way? Or, or why do we have this on the schedule? Or why did he say this in his sermon? And discerning between which questions are being asked for arguments and which questions are being asked for answers and to be able to, to take that. I love that Jesus inserts himself into this conversation in verse 12. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I almost see this as like this classic volleyball setup. Like, here's the service, and he kind of throws it up, and you see a helium effect in these Pharisees. It just kind of lifts them up. He says, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Oh, yeah, that's right. Them, they over there, they are sick. We, we are whole. We don't need you. Perhaps the church environment's new to you. And walking into this scene, and you think, all these people are so needy. These people that come to church multiple times a week, why, why are they so weak that they need such a crutch to lift them up? I have this question for you. When Jesus sent away the Pharisees, he sent them with homework. When Jesus sent away the man sick of the palsy, he sent him away with his sins forgiven and he was healed. What made the difference between these two encounters? Because you know both of them had sins that needed to be forgiven, both the Pharisees and the man sick of the palsy. The Bible says this in verse 14, or 13. Jesus says, but go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. 
For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, look, those that are whole need not a physician, but those that are sick. And I kind of, once again, see the Pharisees saying, oh yeah, that's right. We're in a whole different category than the rest of the sinners in this world. And he says, why don't you go learn what this meaneth? I have not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, if you're the student of the word of God at all, you understand there is none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But when you're consumed like the Pharisees were with their self-righteousness, you don't see the need for a savior. You don't understand how there is a balm, how there is a great physician that you need to go to. If you cannot accept the diagnosis of sin and how, how terrible your sin is, you'll never accept the physician's help. You won't see any need for it. And self-righteousness has, I think, sent more people to hell than possibly anything else. They look at it and they say, well, that's for them. There's a need there. The difference between the man that was sick of palsy, that had his sins forgiven and was healed, and the Pharisees just being sent away with homework was the fact that the one man recognized his need, the others refused to do so. If you're in here and you're saying, look, I don't understand how they're so needy. We are all so needy. The Bible says that even your righteousness is as filthy rags. But for you to have the righteousness of God apply to your account, you're going to have to recognize that you have no righteousness of your own. And we are all lost in our sins. February 26th is coming up. It's going to be a special day. That date is already special to me. The 20, not this coming, I have not been there yet. The, the 26th, though, 16 years ago, is the day I got saved. And I remember being at church, and I remember the moment where I realized that I needed a Savior. The moment of repentance of, of how devastating my personal sin was. And until there's, there's acknowledgement of the presence of sin and there's a repentance of the sin, there's never going to be a remission of sin. You're never going to need it. You're never going to ask for it. And when the Pharisee, God says, hey, why don't you go away and learn what this means? I have not called, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If we are to learn what that means, we realize we are all needy. We all are sinners. There is none righteous. The three encounters with Christ. There was the man that was cured. Why don't you be a part of a miracle? Why don't you bring somebody? Why don't you bear somebody? And it does take some personal sacrifice. <laughs> I can't imagine the looks these guys must have gotten. Tearing open a roof, trying to lower their friend into Jesus. I mean, the closest thing I can imagine is kind of when you're walking down the street with your stack of tracks and your Bible and your tie, and your, people drive by and you just know they're looking at you. But you do it anyways. Because he says, go out and compel them to come in. Being called. My friends, you, as well as the young, are candidates to be called. God looks at those that are busy about their occupation about their responsibilities. Something almost bizarrely spiritual about daily tasks and the work of your hands. Dedicating these things to the Lord. And then the idea of learning what this means. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray together.